Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week, we are putting fertility under the microscope as we investigate the effect that modern life is having on our ability to reproduce. Plus, a new way to fight brain tumours. Do internet filters really keep children safe online? And are there really more people alive today than ever before? I'm Georgia Mills. I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First this week, a new way to tackle brain tumours has been tested successfully in mice by researchers in the US. The team at Stanford in California have found a way to trigger the immune system to selectively attack cancer cells but leave healthy brain tissue untouched. The discovery hinges on a signal called CD47, which brain tumours display on their surfaces. This is an immune off switch which sends out a kind of don't-eat-me signal which prevents dangerous cells from being destroyed. But an artificially produced antibody which blocks this signal can save mice from otherwise lethal human brain tumours. Chris spoke to neurosurgeon Samuel Cheshire to hear how. Brain cancer is the number one killer of children, uh, of all cancers. And uh, it's tough to treat because, one, uh, a lot of times we can't operate to take out the cancer tissue, mainly because the brain is a very sensitive organ and uh, there's lots of it you can't touch. And the other issue is the brain greatly regulates what gets in it from the outside. So it's very difficult to get drugs into the brain. And finally, some of the treatments that we do have that can treat brain cancer effectively, they're all just a little bit more poisonous to the cancer than it is to the person. So they have a lot of toxic side effects. And because children are growing and developing, they're even more susceptible to the side effects than adults. So you can treat a brain cancer, but take a child who would be going to Oxford and Cambridge and change that person to someone who can't even ever hold the job. I'm glad you didn't name any other rival institutions because they would feel second (laughs) best. But what is the approach that you think we might be able to take then if surgery isn't an option and current chemotherapy regimens are just too vicious? What could we do instead? Well, what we can do instead is to get your own body to fight the cancer. And the main part of your body that is really capable of doing that is the immune system. Now, normally your immune system actually fights colds and flus and fevers and bacteria and germs and things of that nature. But what you might not know is your immune system actually fights cancer cells as well. And there are some estimates that every single day your immune system takes care of one to five cancer cells and gets rid of them. But what happens when your cancer is able to grow is that the cancer sends out signals that trick the immune system into leaving it alone. And what we're doing here is we're using special proteins to subvert 
the cancer tricking in order to get your own immune system to go ahead and attack the tumor again and kill it. Effectively, the cancer is disguising itself and saying, look, I'm healthy, don't eat me, I'm harmless. That's exactly what's going on. So the immune system can kill a cancer in three ways. One is to target it like a smart missile and to explode it. The other one is to touch it and kill it, sort of like what Dr. Spock does in Star Trek where he hits you with the Vulcan death grip and then you just fall down. T-cells do that. And the cells that we use in our experiments are called macrophages. They're really like the Pac-Mans of the immune system and they're capable of eating cancer cells. But what happens is cancers express a special protein on the surface of the cell that says, don't eat me. And when we subvert that process by a protein called anti-CD47, the don't eat me signal becomes unreleased and the Pac-Man can now eat the cancer cell. So if you think about it, if anyone's ever played Pac-Man, the anti-CD47 is that big power pill that Pac-Man eats and now can eat the ghosts. So talk me through the experiments you've done then to show that this can work and how you actually came up with something that's capable of masking that don't eat me signal. This was actually a collaboration between a number of scientists at Stanford University. And we took actual pediatric brain tumors from patients that we had operated on, and we put them in the brains of mice that were genetically engineered uh, to be capable of receiving human tissue. So the tumors grew in the brains of the mice, and we gave them the drug, and the tumors went away. So uh, the other thing that was, that was really cool is we actually put normal human brain cells with the brain tumors, and even with active eating of the brain tumors, the normal human brain cells that weren't cancers continue to grow and thrive in the setting of excellent tumor killing. So what actually happened in the mice then? Were they completely cured? Our mice, if you received the treatment, they all lived, and they lived for a very long period of time. Every mouse that didn't receive the treatment died. One of the things that cancers notoriously do is spread, presumably, because you're bringing the immune system to bear against the tumour, it doesn't matter if it's spread because this drug will go to wherever it's spread to and make the immune system active in that place too. That's absolutely true. And one of the tumours that we treated was called a medulloblastoma. This brain tumour has a very big propensity to spread all around your brain. And what we learned is not only can the anti-CD47 treat the primary tumor grown in the brain, but all the spread up and down the brain in the spinal cord was also treated as well. Is it relatively easy to now translate this antibody that you've made, this artificial antibody that hits this don't eat me signal, to human patients to try it in them? Absolutely. Actually, we are using this particular monoclonal antibody in patients with cancers in the very earliest stages of clinical trials. I don't think I'll ever look at Pac-Man in quite the same way again. That was Samuel Cheshire, and he expects to have results from that human trial within a year or two, so we'll have to ask him back to tell us how he's got on. The work you were hearing discussed there was published in Science Translational Medicine. Internet filters that screen what can be accessed over the web are becoming commonplace in people's homes. They block access to online content that might be unsuitable, like pages that contain blacklisted keywords, as well as games and videos. Now, the purpose of all this is to protect children from being exposed to inappropriate material. But now a new study suggests that, in fact, these filters are not very effective. In fact, they may also lull us into a false sense of security and they could even be having a negative effect because of blocking or over-blocking useful content. Tom Crawford spoke to Oxford University's Victoria Nash. 
our most recent study takes some data from some Ofcom surveys. That's the um, communications regulator in the UK. And we carried out some analysis on that data to see whether or not there was any connection between parents that have household filters installed and the likelihood that their children, in this case, 12 to 15 year olds, would have experienced any negative experiences online. Slightly contrary to my expectations, unfortunately, we didn't find strong evidence that installing these household level filters in the home provided effective protection uh, in stopping children from having nasty experiences online. How did you assess how effective these filters were with this data? The data that we were using was a, a survey data set, which was rather nice because a lot of the time we only actually interview, say, children, if we're interested in, in children's responses. In this case, uh, there were interviews carried out both with uh, the 12 to 15 year olds and also their parents. And the data set uh, asked the parents whether or not there were filters installed in the household. And amongst other things, it asked the children whether or not they'd experienced anywhere between, I think, one and seven different types of sort of, we call aversive experiences online really it means just you know sort of nasty unpleasant things and the analysis really that we carried out I won't I won't go into the statistics thankfully um, but effectively it was looking to see if there's any uh, correlation between those two factors and you know what we found was that uh, for those that had filters at home they were no, no less likely to have experienced these things online than those that didn't. And how common was it for a child to experience something aversive or negative online? The most common experience that they'd they'd had online, which was experienced by about 8% of people, was being contacted by somebody they didn't know who wanted to be their friend. Uh, Interestingly, much more common for girls than for boys. I mean, I suppose that's one perhaps to be a little bit careful about, because certainly I know a lot of parents and carers might think that's uh, alarming. It's often presented as such, certainly in sort of policy uh, discussions. But certainly from, say, you know, teens perspective, that could also just mean they're being contacted by somebody with their interests in their age group whom they want to talk to. Um, and then other things that were sort of slightly less common were, were things like sort of seeing sexual content uh, or being cheated out of money or feeling under pressure to share information. Sort of the, the example you gave about meeting strangers online, like I, I would imagine that's very, very difficult for a filter to block because, as you said, it, it can be positive. You know, you can make friends online. And, right. But then sort of filtering out sexually explicit images or things mm-hmm. about drugs or something that I would guess would be much easier to block out with a filter. And and as you said, you would definitely expect that with a filter present, that kind of material would be less available than when the filter wasn't there. That's right. And, you know, obviously we we can't be sure about what the explanations for that might be. One suggestion certainly is that these days so much of children's internet use is actually outside the home that obviously a filtering in the home only controls, if you like, sort of a portion of their experience. It's also the case that so much these days can be exchanged, for example, say on a peer-to-peer basis. It's essentially, you know, quite straightforward for, for this sort of material to be, you know, exchanged and uh, and seen. And and I guess of course the the kids could could be lying. They could be bypassing these filters. Right. Right, absolutely. So, you know, again, we did want to check this out because this is a concern often raised that that the more technically able children will simply be able to just work around filters and that this will expose them to more risk. Luckily for us, this was again a question that was asked in in the Ofcom survey. You know, again, we had to be a bit careful about the result because you can imagine that some children would not be happy saying that they had tried to circumvent filters. But certainly, you know, on the basis of the findings in that survey, there seems to be no difference between those that said they circumvented the filters and those, again, that didn't. So what would be the way forward? Personally, I am not saying we shouldn't use filters. Uh, I recognise that certainly for parents, they represent one useful tool that they would like to, to have in their repertoire. But I think for me, it, it suggests that we we should be doing an awful lot more 
to educate children, to educate parents. You know, this is very difficult. It's a very difficult message to get across, for example, to parents saying, yes, you should let your children use the internet and here's here's how to help them not see things that you might find worrying or how to deal with it. But I think we need to focus more on that. I also think that there's a lot more uh, to be done around what we might term building resilience. So ensuring that if children do encounter risky material or experiences online, that they learn how to you know, get, get away from it or how to uh, ensure that, that you know, the risk is not uh, significant. So like all these things, it comes down to education. Victoria Nash from Oxford University was speaking with Tom Crawford and the work she was discussing was published in the Journal of Paediatrics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Georgia Mills. Still to come, a new app that can be used as a method of contraception and a look at how modern living is both helping and harming our chances of successfully reproducing. First, though, and sticking with the subject of reproduction, we've got this week's Myth Conception from Tim Revel. Did you know that there are more people alive today than have ever lived before? A myth pusher might ask. But there is only one response to this myth, and it's not a delicate one. No, I didn't know that, because it's wrong. You simply could not be further from the truth, and here's why. If you go back in history, the population of Earth was pretty tiny compared to today. There are over 7 billion people alive right now, but at the height of the Roman Empire in around 1 AD, there were only 300 million people on Earth in total. So there is perhaps some logic to this myth, even if it is very wrong. Counting everyone who has ever lived is really not an easy task. Modern-day humans, or Homo sapiens, first started walking the Earth around 50,000 years ago. But unfortunately, it took us supposedly wise creatures a long time to develop good bookkeeping skills. So for the majority of the time humans have been on Earth, we have no written records of how they lived or who was living. For cave men and women, there were more pressing things to do than create and store birth certificates. But despair not, we do have some good approximations of the number of people that have ever lived. In 2015, the Population Reference Bureau in Washington, USA, did a detailed analysis of all the information we have about the number of humans roaming Earth over the last 50,000 years. This included archaeological evidence and modern-day birth records, as well as extrapolating from the general trends, and they came up with a conservative estimate. They reckon that since the first Homo sapiens, there have been 108 billion humans on the planet. That's around 15 dead people for every one of the 7 billion living people alive today. In fact, we passed 7 billion dead way back in 8000 BC. OK, OK, but the world's population is growing, so maybe one day we will have more people alive than dead, a myth sapien might say. Nope again. The population is rising, but not fast enough and the rate is actually slowing. Working out the maths, the United Nations say that it's unlikely that the world's population will double its current size, and they estimate that the population will stabilise at around 10 billion people sometime after the year 2200. This means that the living do not outnumber the dead, and they will never outnumber the dead. So hopefully this myth conception will die out soon. Tim Revel laying that myth to rest for us, along with the 108 billion people who've previously lived. And if there's some suspicious sounding science or statistics that you've come across and you'd like us to take a look, you can drop us a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, coming up, we're discussing fertility. The flip side of which, of course, is contraception. And with us to discuss a new app 
which helps you to plan a family. And this app has been certified just this month as the first app ever for use in contraception is Rail Shavitzel, who's the co-founder of Natural Cycles. Hello, Rail. Hi, Chris. Tell us about your app. What does it do? Okay, natural, with Natural Cycles, a woman measures her temperature in the morning, then enters it into the app, and the algorithm then crunches the data and returns a red or a green day. So on a red day, there's a risk of pregnancy and the couple needs to use protection or abstain. And on a green day, there's, um, there's considered no risk of pregnancy, so they're good to go. Tell us, what is the, the physiology or the, the way the body works, the principle upon which this is founded? The medical basis is actually 100 years old. Um, it's known that after ovulation, the temperature rises because of an increase in progesterone. And so by tracking your temperature, what you can do is actually identify um, that ovulation has happened. And uh, if you take sperm survival into account and the ovulation day, you can then you know, compute the days where there's a risk of getting pregnant and, a, and the days where there's not. And does this work straight out of the box or does a person have to teach the machine about them? Because obviously everyone's different and if you talk to different women, they will say that broadly that their cycle is a month long, but it varies. Yeah, I would say that cycles are generally irregular and uh, the the good thing with the algorithm that we developed is that it really adapts to every woman's unique cycles. Um, so um, the woman just needs to get started with measuring and actually natural cycles takes care of the rest. Now, when you say get get started, as in how many cycles would a woman have to go through before she could rely on your tool? Oh, she can rely on the tool from day one, but the app in the beginning will be very conservative when it gives a green day because the algorithm simply doesn't know yet whether the woman is fertile or not. So in the beginning, she's likely to start with red days, days where she needs to use protection. And then over time, after in the first cycle, generally the algorithm already finds the first ovulation and then gives green days for the rest of the cycle um, in, in the, um, where she's not fertile. And, uh, and that, that fraction of green days per month or per cycle gradually increases over time and stabilizes roughly after three cycles. How many people have you tested it on? The app is uh, being used by more than 200,000 women worldwide uh, as of today, basically. So uh, it's a lot of women using the app. The clinical studies that we have done, however, were, were done on um, 4,000 women uh, using the app for a total of 2,000 years. When you say 2,000, as in 2,000 women years, so the number of people using it added up to the equivalent of 2,000 years of use. Exactly. And what's its success rate? How reliable is this? Contraceptives effectiveness are generally measured in pearl indices. So they tell how many women get pregnant in a year uh, when using this certain contraceptive. And in our case, we could show that seven women out of 100 get pregnant in a year for all possible reasons. That's a typical use pearl index. And uh, five women out of 1,000 get pregnant in a year because we give a wrong green day. So we, um, because the, the algorithm gave falsely attributed a green day within the fertile window, actually. These results are extremely promising because uh, it definitely already improves the use of natural family planning, which so far has always been uh, considered less effective. And with the algorithm now and with the automation behind it, it, it improves the use to the level where it becomes comparable to the contraceptive pill. Now, you say you're the first app ever to be certified for this use. I'm aware of many people that have published similar sorts of or invented similar sorts of things in the past. So what sets you apart that enables you to get that certification? Well, 
contraception is a is a serious thing. It's uh, it's very important that you get that right. And and so if you want to bring an app onto the market for contraception, then you need to do not just convince women of it and doctors with clinical data, but you also need to convince regulators that this is safe for the public to use. And therefore, we underwent the conformity assessment that you need to do if you want to bring a, a contraceptive product onto the market. And in 30 seconds, if someone is interested in trying out this product, how do they find out more about it? Oh, they, they go to our website on naturalcycles.com or they download it from the App Store. Terrific. Rail, thank you. And uh, interesting to hear about it. We look forward to hearing more in the future. That's Rail Schwitzel and he's from Natural Cycles. Now, some people say there's nothing like the sound of birdsong. There's definitely nothing like being woken up at 5am from it. And many of us are pretty good at telling apart our pigeons from our blackbirds with their distinctive calls. But our understanding of what birds are actually saying to each other when they sing is still very limited. Jane Reck has been along to Queen Mary University of London to hear about some research that is changing this. The timing is really important. It's not just some notes, but it's some notes with a particular sequencing. It's about 200-300 milliseconds gap between each of them. Dr Dan Stowell is a research fellow in machine listening at Queen Mary, University of London. His work has already been used to develop an app called Warbler, which identifies a UK bird from the recording a user makes. Now he hopes to take the computer analysis of the sounds birds make to a new level to discover more about the social interaction that's going on. Traditionally, you would take explicit measures such as how long is this sound, what frequency is that sound. But in order to go beyond that, we use modern machine learning methods where you don't necessarily know how a computer has made a decision about a particular sound. But by training it, which means showing it lots of previous examples, we can encourage a computer algorithm to generalise from those. At the university's laboratory aviary, female zebra finches provide plenty of audio examples for Dan's research. We've put the timing of the calls together with acoustic analysis of of what's the content of that call. Is it a a short call or a long call, for example? So with the zebra finches that we're working with, to some extent there's knowledge about what the calls are and what their purpose is. So when the birds are just hanging around together, they very often make short calls to each other just in the ordinary course of business, so they just sound a bit like... If one of them gets separated a little bit, I mean, it doesn't have to be too far, maybe it gets separated a couple of metres from its partner, and then it would do a distance call, which sounds more like... A little bit longer, a little bit more emphasis. It's quite clear from the content that it's for re-establishing contact and making sure that you've not lost your partner or your group. We're starting by taking small, at this point, small groups of birds and record all the calls and use the timing of those calls to decipher is this bird, when it calls, influencing another bird? So are its calls causing another bird to call? It's very difficult to tell that just by listening to the recording. But if we apply an analysis which says, does the probability of one bird calling increase after this bird calls, or does it decrease, or is there some more subtle interaction, then we can work out how strongly each bird influences each other, and that gives us a kind of picture of the communication network in that group of birds. All of Dan's research has been supported by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. In the longer term, it could be used in a wide variety of areas.
Deciphering the Dawn Chorus is certainly one of the long-term goals of this kind of work, certainly something I'm very interested in. The general application of automatic bird detection or automatic monitoring has a lot of significance in terms of monitoring populations. And we know, for example, that bird populations, the latitudes that they migrate to, depend at least in part on the effects of climate change. And so monitoring these things is important. Looking at the detail of bird vocalisations and how birds interact with each other is important in the long term for understanding animal communication, which includes human communication. People working on these things are looking at birdsong, at least in part because it's an analogy to human language. Songbirds learn to sing in an analogous fashion as, as humans learn to speak a language. And so we can improve the monitoring of animal sounds, we can improve the understanding, sort of decoding of animal sounds. More generally, we actually have quite a lot of applications in which machines are going to need to understand the world around them through sound as well as through vision, whether that's self-driving cars, whether that's your mobile phone, whether it's monitoring CCTV, for example. And although people have been working on speech recognition and speech technology for a long time, what this work can feed into is a more general understanding, more general sound analysis of an ordinary sound environment. There was also an unforeseen but very welcome addition to Dan's research, which has come from the thousands of sounds collected by the great British public through the Warbler app. This big data citizen science aspect will contribute to the machine learning work to help a computer analyse whether a particular sound is or isn't made by a bird. One thing that we didn't quite expect was that people would like to test the recognition quality for themselves by making funny noises into the phone and seeing what decision it came up with. Beep, 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 beep. So as a result, we have an unexpected extra benefit of uh, this collection of bird impressions and whistling and uh, squawking children and other things. Part of what's motivating this is essentially the big question, you know, what is birdsong? How can a computer know this is birdsong, this is a squeaky door, this is a small child? Those kind of questions you have to try and really address if we're going to be able to automate this kind of detection. There are people creating projects right now where they have unattended microphone systems in the forest recording and trying to identify which birds occur where. And in order to be able to do that in, in any sort of scalable way, we're going to need algorithms that can say, yes, that is a bird, or no, that's just a tree creaking in the wind. Some fantastic bird impressions there. Chris, do you have a, a good uh, impression I or two? I knew you were going to do that to me, and the answer is no, I'm terrible at bird impressions. I'm terrible at any impression. Oh, that's a shame. That I was, was going to get you with that. You got in there first. <laughs> I got in there first. Well, that was uh, Jane Reck reporting there on the research that will provide more insight into the social interaction that goes on between birds. And you can find out more about this story in an audio slideshow on YouTube. You just need to do a search on Deciphering the Dawn Chorus EPSRC. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Chris Smith. This week, we're talking about babies, or more precisely, what influences our ability to make one as we explore fertility. About one in seven couples currently experience problems trying to conceive. But why is that? Well, the pressures of modern lifestyles are probably playing a big part in the equation. 
as we're going to hear about later. But before that, how does one make a baby? Tom Crawford and I have been finding out. Here are the nuts and bolts about the cells that make reproduction possible. Men produce sperm non-stop throughout their life. It takes about two months per sperm cell from beginning to end. Women are very different. They start making eggs nine weeks after fertilisation, and by the time they're born, they have all of their eggs already in their ovaries that they will ever produce. Males make loads of sperm. Half a teaspoon contains about 200 million. Each sperm has a lifetime of between 40 and 70 days. In comparison, females only release about 500 eggs during their entire reproductive life. Sperm are tiny. The head is one two thousandth of a centimetre. But if you lined up all 200 million head to tail, they would extend over six miles. Eggs, on the other hand, are one of the largest cells in the human body at about 0.2 millimetres in size. They can just about be seen with the human eye. Sperm can survive for about two days inside a woman and swim towards an egg by following chemical signals that they sniff out. Eggs ensure that only one sperm can enter and fertilise them by transforming their surface coat into an impenetrable outer shell immediately after fertilisation. Both eggs and sperm have only half of the DNA that's found in all other cells. Sperm have either an X or a Y chromosome. Eggs can only have an X chromosome, so if they meet a Y-carrying sperm, a male baby is formed, and an X-bearing sperm results in a female. So sperm, in other words dad, determines the sex of a future baby. So there you have the basics. And as we mentioned earlier, one in seven couples currently experience problems when trying to conceive. So are fertility rates declining? Professor Tim Child is from Oxford Fertility. Hi, Tim. Hi there. So is this true? What are the worldwide trends we're seeing right now in fertility rates? Um, Well, there's certainly some controversy, but it it may be that um, male sperm quality is reducing, although there's some controversy around that. It's certainly true that um, women are tend to be leaving it later in life uh, to be trying to conceive. And so we've noticed that uh, quite a significant shift, actually, in age of first childbirth. And also there have been increasing rates of, for instance, chlamydia and other problems that could affect the woman's tubes. Is the fertility going down? Are we seeing this across the world? Again, some controversy from a UK perspective, um, it can be difficult to work out. There's increased awareness because of, for instance, programmes such as this on fertility issues and potentially treatments for fertility. And so certainly within the UK, we are seeing that more people are coming forward looking for fertility treatment. And what about elsewhere in the world? Um, again, within, um, in Africa, for instance, again, there are data suggesting that infertility rates um, are increasing. Again, the difficulty is that there are such huge social changes going on around the world that it can be hard to know the extent to which um, changes are due to social changes or actual pathology affecting fertility. And you mentioned earlier this might be due to people having children later in life. So how does this affect fertility? So as you mentioned in the intro, um, women are born with a couple of million eggs in their ovaries. And for some reason, we're not entirely sure why, the eggs that are released as women get older are more likely to have genetic or chromosomal problems within. They're more likely to have the wrong number of chromosomes. The same is true for men as well, but it happens at a later age. What that means is that on a monthly basis, as couples get older, they're less likely to get pregnant and unfortunately are more likely to have a miscarriage. Oh, wow. And this is, you can see this month by month. Yes, certainly. So um, so as you go through a woman's reproductive life and you look at her chance of getting pregnant year by year, then roughly up until her early 30s, it appears to be fairly stable. But as she goes into her mid and late 30s, then her monthly chance of conception does go down. 
And the unfortunate double whammy is the chance of miscarriage does increase. And what about other environmental factors that might be having an impact on fertility rates? Do we have any um, possible suspects? Well, I know that one of the later speakers is going to be focusing more on the sperm side of things, but there have been various environmental, perhaps chemical suspects from a sperm uh, perspective. The same is true from a female perspective. There's been some suggestion that some chemicals may be increasing the risk of conditions such as endometriosis, which is a common condition that 20% of women have that can affect fertility. But again, the quality of a lot of this data is very, very poor, so we're not entirely sure. And could it be related to, um, I mean, there's a lot of things out at the moment about how we're, we're not eating very well, we're maybe a bit fatter than we should be. Has that been linked with fertility? Certainly BMI has been linked with both male and female infertility. We know that as a woman's BMI increases um, out of the 20s into the 30s, then her monthly chance of getting pregnant goes down and again the chance of miscarriage does go up. We're not entirely sure why and this is why, for instance, um, those people that are lucky enough to qualify for NHS IVF funding if they need it, in nearly all areas of the UK, women will have to have a BMI of less than 30 and that's really based on the, the very strong evidence that BMI does matter. Okay, so we'll be probing a bit more about the male and female effects that might be causing this. But uh, just briefly, what are people doing uh, who are having trouble conceiving? What kind of things are they doing to try and help them? Well, one of the most important things is if couples are worried about their fertility, then the first port of call would be to have a chat with the GP. That could be after six to 12 months of trying, for instance. In general, if a woman's having regular cycles, she's probably going to be ovulating. But there are some quite straightforward blood tests that can check for ovulation. The man can do a sperm test, again, via his GP. And once they get to 12 months of trying, if those tests are normal, then usually the third test would be a check of the woman's fallopian tubes. It can be quite a straightforward test. Often that, be, that would need to be arranged in hospital. And if we see then the woman's ovulating, the man's got normal sperm and the woman's tubes are open, then very often the suggestion would be to continue trying for a bit longer. Okay, dokie. And very briefly, is the this drop in fertility, are we seeing it mainly in that people just are unable to conceive or is it problems later on that are, are popping up? Um, it tends to be that couples have uh, perhaps a delay in conception. So it's, it's not common that we would see a couple where there's no chance of them conceiving. Very often we would be able to say that their monthly chance of conception may be much less than they would like. But often the, the suggestion would be to continue trying, perhaps optimise lifestyle, and if necessary, moved on, move on to some treatments such as IVF or some drugs to get the woman ovulating. Thanks very much. That's Tim Charles from Oxford Fertility. We've heard so far how modern living might make us less fertile as a species, but what about males in particular? Sperm counts, on the whole, seem to be in decline. But what is it that determines the number of sperm produced by a man, and what role does ageing play? Alan Pacey is a professor of andrology at the University of Sheffield. There's some controversy about whether or not sperm counts have declined or not. In, in 1992, there was a famous paper published in the BMJ by Elizabeth Carlson suggesting that sperm counts from the 1930s to the 1990s had seen a year-on-year decline. It gets a little bit fuzzy as we go further forward from that because some studies say that there hasn't been a change, some studies say that there has. But it's certainly clear that couples are having fewer children, more men are seeking infertility diagnoses and treatment but I think we've got to remember that some of that may be social as much as it might be biological. So if we assume for a minute that that sperm counts might be on the move what factors might account for them dropping? Well there's two stages in a man's life where sperm counts might be affected. The first might be a surprise and that is processes that happen before he's even born. 
as a fetus, the developmental processes that develop his reproductive system and ultimately will influence the size to which his testicles will grow will have an effect on his sperm counts as an adult, but they're processes that occur before he's born. Then when a man is an adult, we have to take into account all of the things that may impact on his life at that moment in time that may affect his sperm production. So, for example, there are certain drugs and medications that we know will decrease sperm production and may do so permanently. But similarly, there are temporary effects such as temperature. And we know, for example, that men who wear pants that are too tight are more at risk of poorer sperm counts. So when we're studying male fertility, we almost have to take a two-step look at processes that might have occurred before he was born and those that are occurring now. So there's a developmental predisposition to your maximum fertility and superimposed on that is how you live your life. What's the reason for that developmental predisposition towards testicular size and fertility? Why should that effect be there? I think it's just part of the developmental program and external things that may affect that might be aspects of maternal diet, um, aspects of maternal hormonal environment in the womb. If you're to build a factory, how big do you build the factory will depend on how many cars, for example, you may make when the factory opens. And the developmental processes define how big the factory gets, whereas you don't know how efficient the factory will be until the production line starts rolling, and that only occurs at puberty. And when the production line does start rolling, tell me a bit more about the kinds of factors that do influence sperm count. You alluded to temperature. That's one of them, and people wearing tight pants. But um, there, there are others. There are others. Um, We know that uh, temperature has an effect, uh, as I've said, and there are many studies, both from epidemiology, but also um, experimental studies in animal models that show that if you elevate the temperature of the testicles, you decrease sperm production. But then there are subtle influences of aspects of, of diet. We know that men who are eating more processed, refined foods generally have a poorer sperm production that men who are eating five portions of fruit and vegetables a day and are are eating more Mediterranean diets, for example. There are also temporary issues to do with alcohol to some extent. I think you really have to be in the realms of going into binge drinking before we see an alcohol effect. But then there's also an impact of things like smoking and the compounds within cigarette smoke. Smoking doesn't alter the efficiency of the sperm production process but what it does is it allows the introduction of damage at the genetic level so the sperm that are produced are ultimately less functional because their DNA is a bit more chopped up and a bit more mashed up. So I think when we think about sperm production we not only have to think about the efficiency and the speed of it but we also have to think about the quality of the sperm that come out at the other end. I was going to ask that because one aspect of this is how many sperm can you physically make and that's going to be important but then equally if all those sperm that you make you make millions and they're all defective you're not really any better off than someone who makes none. Indeed and there is a theory that men whose sperm production process is too quick also generally makes poorer quality sperm simply because to take the analogy there's enough time to put the wheels on. So timing really is everything. What about ageing, though? Because increasingly people are deferring having a family till they're older. There are lots of people now who are on their second family. Are there effects there? Yeah, there are subtle effects in ageing, but it does become a little more interesting, actually, because 
there are slight changes in in how many sperm an older man produces and how well they swim but they're really quite subtle but at the genetic level when you look at the health of the children born to an older man compared to the health of children born to a younger man you see that there are increased risks of having a child with a genetic disease and the kind of things that we see are increased risks of schizophrenia, Down syndrome, things like achondroplasia, which is, is a form of shortening of the bones, which leads to a form of dwarfism. So that's probably indicative of the fact that as a man gets older, then the quality of the genes in the sperm that are produced is not as good. So don't hang around too long. That was Alan Pacey from the University of Sheffield. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Georgia Mills. Now, we heard earlier in the programme that as men age, the genetic quality of their sperm falls, and this might also affect fertility. But what about women? The general trend in many countries is that couples are starting families later, which appears to be driven by financial, educational and career pressures. So how does deferring motherhood affect a woman's fertility? Francesca Duncan is the executive director of the Centre for Reproductive Science at Northwestern University. Hi, Fran. Hi. Um, So how does a woman's fertility alter with age? Uh, So as women age, there is a dramatic decline in both the number of the eggs within her ovaries as well as decline in their quality. Um, And what people may not realize is that reproductive aging in females begins when they reach their mid-30s and continues all the way until menopause around age 50. So really female reproductive aging um, is one of the first um, organ systems in the human body to show signs of overt aging. So do we know why this is? So we study, my laboratory and others around the world study um, what happens to egg quality with age, and we really look at it from multiple angles. So what's happening to the DNA inside of the egg, um, what happens to other structures within the egg, and then what happens to the environment of the ovary where the egg is developing. Okay, so how do these three things affect the quality of an egg? So we know that as um, women age, there is an increase in the chromosomal abnormalities um, in that egg. So the egg has to undergo a process of cell division called meiosis. And this process is really necessary for the egg to half its chromosomes so that when it unites with sperm, it can have the correct chromosomal complement in the embryo. With age, there is an increase in the abnormalities in this segregation process. And this leads to incorrect chromosome numbers. Okay, so these are kind of uh, too much DNA in a cell. Yes, exactly. Or the incorrect number. So it can have too much or too little, and that can be bad for the outcomes of the embryo. And again, with age, the ability of that egg to undergo this process correctly deteriorates. Okay, and what about the other items in the cell? Right. So there are also lots of things in the cell. The egg is one of the largest cells in the body. And there are lots of structures called organelles. And you can think of these as little factories within the cell. Um, And mitochondria are one of the the organelles that we think about, um, especially with regards to aging um, in the egg. So mitochondria are really the energy producing cells of or organelles of the body. Um, And they're important for really supporting the energetic demands of the egg as it develops and later the early embryo. And with aging, researchers have shown that there's a decrease in the functional capacity of these mitochondria, as well as an increase in the mutations um, in mitochondrial DNA. And this can really negatively impact uh, reproductive outcomes. Okay, so I guess the uh, for an egg to get to a baby, it's going to take a lot of energy. So if something's gone wrong in the energy factory of the cell, that's kind of a big deal. 
Absolutely. Um, and then the final really part that we're really interested in is what's happening to the environment in which that egg is developing. Um, and because there's this complex environment of protein networks, as well as different cell types where the egg develops in that ovary. Um, and our work has shown that there is um, really really striking changes in that microenvironment. So it becomes fibrotic or stiffer with age. And you can actually physically um, feel this if you touch a uh, an animal ovary or a human ovary as it ages, that it becomes tougher. Um, and then this is also corresponding with a highly inflammatory um, environment, which can damage the egg um, indirectly. So we're really interested to see how we can um, study the mechanisms that underlie these changes in the environment. So to sum up, we've got a problem in the coding in the DNA DNA of the cell, the uh, energy factories are messing up and the environment the egg in, is living in is worse. So what, what can we do about this? Can this be mitigated? Yeah, so I think, you know, as you just highlighted, it's complex and it's multifactorial. And so I think there's unlikely to be just really one catch-all intervention that will, you know, cure egg quality with age. But there are a lot of efforts um, underway now to figure out if there are ways that we can target one or more of these pathways. So um, one example is supplementation um, of the animal or the, the impending mother with antioxidants or mitochondrial nutrients that will improve the mitochondrial um, function. Um, and this has shown um, tremendous promise in mouse models um, in terms of extending fertility and improving fertility outcomes, but the data is less clear in humans. Now, something I've heard mentioned quite a lot is this idea of egg freezing. Could you just quickly explain what that is and then tell me if it is, does it work? Yeah, so um, egg freezing um, really refers to the idea of um, undergoing a process of assisted reproduction to stimulate the ovaries to produce eggs that are then retrieved and frozen. And what you're probably referring to is this concept in relationship to aging is social egg freezing, where younger women um, are who want to sort of freeze their biological age and time or Another way to think about this is for fertility insurance, we'll have this process of oocyte freezing done when they're young um, with the hopes that later on when they're maybe ready to start a family and they're older, um, they will have young eggs uh, to use to start their family. But you mentioned earlier one of the, one of the problems here is that the environment itself is, is harsher. Right. There's actually fairly compelling data from assisted reproductive technology cycles that shows from egg donor studies. So these are from uh, women, eggs are obtained from women who are young, and then they're transferred back into women of advanced reproductive age. You can, in fact, um, have very high fertility rates in these older women when they use eggs from younger um, individuals. But what the real big problem is with um, this process is that embryos are then being transferred into an older woman. And we know that pregnancies in women of advanced maternal age have their own complications uh, for both the mother and the offspring. And so this can include gestational diabetes, low birth weight, preterm birth, and stillbirth. So basically, there's some uh, problems, you know, of having an, an older mother carry a pregnancy to term. Thank you very much. That was Francesca Duncan from Northwestern University. So we've talked about things that men and women can do individually to maximise their fertility. But what about the environment that we live in and the air we're breathing? Well, Professor Paul Fowler from the University of Aberdeen looks at how factors like these can play a role. So Paul, what sorts of exposures are you interested in looking at? Well, in the modern world, we're exposed to a very large range of chemicals all at the same time. So what interests me is looking at uh, models where 
the exposure to the foetus, which is a sensitive life stage, is also an exposure to a complex cocktail. One of your previous speakers already alluded to smoking, and I study the effects of maternal smoking on the human foetus, because really there is no totally adequate animal model for that. And when you look at the effects on the foetus, you can uh, see changes in the liver and also defects in both the developing testis and the developing ovary. This matches to increased uh, risk for the offspring of having um, reduced fertility in adulthood. The thing is that um, ever since Walter Raleigh and all his pals went and got tobacco off of the Americas and brought it back and got us all hooked on it, people have been smoking, but populations have not declined. Populations have grown and they've grown faster and faster until more recently. So it can't just be smoking. There must be something else which is also affecting people's fertility. Well, that is a very good point to make, although uh, taking one of the points your other speakers uh, mentioned, uh, increasingly leaving uh, your fertility till later will exacerbate the problems. But we're also exposed to a very large range of both natural and synthetic chemicals, some of which are persistent, some of which are not persistent. But some of these chemicals are what we call endocrine disrupting compounds. And what they can do is to alter how the body's endogenous hormones, how our own hormones, our own endocrine system uh, works. So an example would be uh, something like uh, uh, phthalates, which may block the effects of the androgen receptor. These are in plastic bottles, aren't they? That's correct, yes. And the effect of that in in the developing male fetus will be uh, reduced masculinization. Essentially, we're living in a world which is more polluted than previously. We've made more artificial things than we ever had in the past, and we're basted in these substances. The environment's full of them. We're being exposed, and because they might look chemically a bit like some of the hormones that we naturally have in our body, there might be a knock-on effect to our own physiology, the way our body works, because of exposure to these chemicals, and one of those consequences could be affecting our reproductive development. That is correct, although the thing to bear in mind is that um, some of these compounds do indeed have close relationships. So one would be bisphenol A, which looks a bit like oestrogen, and indeed bisphenol A can act like an oestrogen, but it's a much weaker oestrogen than the oestrogen in our own bodies. Well, how, how are you looking at this? How are you attempting to study this? Well, the other model we use is... Um, a sheep exposed to sewage sludge, which contains, a, if I may put it this way, a, a rich digestion of the modern world, <laughs> right from pharmaceuticals to agricultural runoff to air pollution. But sheep don't eat sewage, do they? So how do the sheep get in contact with the sewage sludge? Well, sewage sludge is a wonderful fertiliser, so it is widely used in many European countries, including the UK, as a fertiliser. And we found that if you pasture pregnant sheep on sewage sludge fertilised fields, then you can get uh, defects in uh, development of the foetus. So smaller testes, lower testosterone, reduced numbers of eggs. And some of those defects persist in some of the animals into adulthood. And are they transgenerational? In other words, if an animal is affected in this way, when it itself then comes to breed, do its offspring suffer similarly? 
There is some evidence of that in, in other studies. We've not been able to do that with the sheep model. Um, if you think about how long it takes to, to breed successive generations of sheep and the patience of funders, um, that's difficult to do. There is evidence of uh, transgenerational effects of smoking, for instance. It's a worry, though, isn't it? Because if we're exposed to these chemicals because we've messed up the environment, and obviously you're looking at sheep, and that's one example, but you can see how with these things being in the environment, we may ourselves also be being exposed. But if the effects don't go away or, or we've done something to ourselves and we can pass those effects on to our offspring, that's a real concern. It, it is a concern, although one of the things to perhaps um, just take a little bit of comfort from is given that we're exposed to very complex cocktails of chemicals, the net outcome for the individual is very difficult to predict. That said, it's only sensible that um, proper risk assessments are done on the chemicals that are used in order to uh, determine their likely risk both to humans and to um, economically important species. And just very briefly in 30 seconds, actually, what evidence have you got that what is happening in the sheep could be happening in us? Alan Pacey did say the data on falling sperm counts is controversial and some of the studies are very poor, and I agree utterly with that statement. However, increasingly, series of publications recently suggest that the decrease in sperm counts in humans probably is genuine. Paul Fowler from the University of Aberdeen, thank you very much. And a big thank you to our other guests this week, Raoul Schwitzel, Tim Child, Alan Pacey and Francesca Duncan. And now it's time for question of the week. Ricky Nathvani has been buzzing around to find the answer to this question from Meran. Is it possible to get HIV from a mosquito or any insect that has drawn blood from an infected person and transferred it to a healthy person? It's a scary thought. We know that HIV is found in the blood and can infect people through transmission of bodily fluids. So could a mosquito spread HIV the same way they spread malaria? Thankfully, Peter Bull at the Department of Pathology at the University of Cambridge is on hand to set things straight. The short answer to this question is very clearly stated by the Centre for Disease Control in Atlanta on their website. No, HIV is not transmitted by mosquitoes, ticks or any other insects. Whew, well that's a relief. But why? Several viruses are transmitted by insects. For example, dengue, Zika, yellow fever, and the parasites responsible for malaria and sleeping sickness. If all these diseases are transmitted by insects, why not HIV? What all these infections have in common is the ability to reproduce and multiply within specific insects and then be re-injected into another person. By contrast, HIV is immediately rendered harmless once it gets digestive in the insect's gut. So, it turns out that HIV in infected blood just gets digested inside mosquitoes and can't do much from there. But how do all those other nasty diseases end up surviving? Viruses like dengue that I just mentioned are all in the same biological group called flaviviruses. They can all reprogram insect cells to manufacture copies of themselves. This is an enormous feat of nanoengineering involving specific interactions between many virus and insect molecules. And the virus's genetic software, if you like, only works with compatible insect cellular hardware. Similarly, the parasite responsible for malaria has evolved to infect insects over millions of years. Instead of being destroyed by mosquito digestive juices, which is what happens to HIV, the parasite's sex cells 
picked up from an infected human, fused to form a new, immature form of the parasite. After escaping through the wall of the gut, this divides to produce thousands of new malaria parasites, which make their way to the mosquito's salivary glands ready to be injected with saliva through a dedicated tube into another human when the mosquito next takes a blood meal. So certain diseases can hijack the mosquito's cells to make thousands of copies of itself. But thankfully, other blood-borne illnesses like HIV can't really do this. So there are a lot of stages a virus or a parasite has to go through to be transmitted between humans. HIV isn't capable of surviving and replicating in a mosquito, so it can be transmitted because it gets destroyed in the mosquito's gut. Nor is it able to infect and multiply in insect cells. Insects are not like flying syringe needles or blood bags, and only a handful of infectious agents have evolved the specialised ability to reproduce in insects and then spread to another person. So malaria and yellow fever might find its way into you from a mosquito, but at least HIV won't. Cheers for the answer, Peter. And if you worked up a sweat listening to that, you might be interested in our question for next week coming in from James in Australia. As part of my exercise regime, I climb the stairs in our house. Is it more efficient to take two steps at once or take each individual step? And following on, is one tactic better for improving cardiovascular fitness, muscle strength and so on? If you think you know the answer, do let us know. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook and you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. And that's it for this week, I'm sad to say. Thank you very much to Tom Crawford for production. Do join us at the same time next week, though, when we're going to be journeying inside the atom, because this year marks 100 years since physicist Ernest Rutherford first split the atom, and we'll find out what's been discovered in the century since that landmark breakthrough. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University, and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, from all of us, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.